The name of the podcast probably didn't give it away. Um, maybe that clip would. Um, we're covering the 1982 quasi uh, supernatural slasher superstition um, this episode. And as ever, this is Hysteria Continues, um, episode number nine, I believe. Um, I'm Justin, um, webmaster of Hysteria uh, Lives and also the author of Teenage Wasteland. Um, and as ever, I'm joined by our slasher troubadours. Um, first up is Eric. How do you know I am alive? <laughs> Thank you, Dana. Um, and from Tennessee, Joseph. We are no strangers to love. You know the rules, and so do I. There, I just rickrolled our entire audience. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Joseph. And also from Tennessee, we've got Nathan. I directed Hairdresser Massacre and Voodoo Massacre back it's, in the 90s. Yes, we, we should get around to talking about some of those movies you've directed, uh, Nathan. This is true. Yes, we that will. show will last about ten seconds long. <laughs> but if you you should get some sound clips on because that that'll be um, that'll be really good fun actually to hear some. Are they are they? Um, as Joseph, you've seen them, haven't you? Yes, I have seen them, and um, they're really spectacular. Are they? Okay. Thanks. <laughs> no sarcasm at all in that. I thought that was my refrigerator. <laughs> or freezer, <laughs> freezer, freezer, freezer. Right. <laughs> It's been years since I've seen them, so I forget. Okay. For well, I look forward to seeing them at some point. Are they are they on the internet anywhere? No, my family no. threatened to kill me if I put them up. Okay, and it's like it's all friends and family acting in them, is it? Yes. Excellent. No special edition DVD. I'm sorry to say. Okay. I could yet. give a commentary. Well, I think we're going to have to come back to these. I think if you get some sound clips for the next show, Nathan, I think we should do a, a few. Um, we should revisit those and whet people's appetite if you're up for that. I'm I'll sure, work on that. I'm sure the legions of our um, listeners would be. So, um, well, again, um, welcome back to the Hysteria Continues. Um, we've got another bumper show for you. Um, as I said before, we're going to be covering um, superstition, which is what we've been doing is taking it in turns. Uh, choosing a slash movie each and this week it's it's my turn and I'll talk about superstition and why it was one of the staples of my childhood or my adolescence and why I think it's a, a great film and if you haven't seen it you should definitely check it out. Um, we're also going to be talking about films we've recently seen um, and some feedback. We've actually got quite a lot of feedback this episode so thank you if you've written in. Um, hopefully we'll give you a mention. Um, and this episode, we're going to do top three scores or songs from slasher movies. Now, this was something um, suggested, and I can't remember who suggested it now, but if it was you who suggested it, we are listening, and we got some corkers coming up. Um, and also, there's, there's a special um, question, which Joe's going to ask later. But first up, shall we say what, what have we been watching recently, folks? Um, do you want to go first, Eric? Yeah, well, I've... Um purchased a number of uh, the releases from Arrow Films, who are this company in the UK doing some spectacular special editions of 80s movies uh, well, and 70s. I've got the Island of Death DVD, 
uh, Phenomena Blu-ray and Vamp Blu-ray. And they are, I mean, uh, none of them really slasher movies, although Phenomena we, I did include in my uh, sort of slasher top three a few weeks ago. Um, I, I just don't know what to say about them. I mean, when I started purchasing Region 2 discs, which is discs over here in Europe, back in the late 90s, they were always so much inferior to the Region 1 pro um, stuff that was coming out. So I used to import most of the DVDs I bought. Uh, but they've really caught up. I mean, Arrow are probably the best company, I think, out there at the moment, uh, you know, doing stuff. They're as good as Blue Underground, if not better, or Anchor Bay or any of those, you know, uh, iconic labels that uh, were there during the 2000s. Um, and Justin, I believe that you have got uh, some tasty Blu-ray news for us coming up in July. Uh, I have indeed. I mean, yeah. a lot of people might already know this, but I was sworn to secrecy, but I um, was invited by Callum Waddle, who's um, a fantastic genre uh, journalist, mm -hmm. and he does lots of the um, extras for, for Arrow releases with high-rising uh, productions, which is a fantastic little company who does some brilliant um, productions and extras for movies. And the thing, him and his girlfriend are fans of the movie, so they go out of their way to travel around the world to talk to obscure people about obscure movies and movies that we hold dear to our heart. But many people, many companies outside of Arrow would not go to the trouble they do. Um, and um, they are putting out an amazing Blu-ray of Toby Hooper's The Fun House, which has got something like three commentary tracks. Um, it's just got a huge amounts on, on there. Um, and I was privileged enough to be invited to do a commentary track on The Fun House. And also another film, um, perhaps even more highly sought after, is Slaughter High, um, which is the, the great Carolyn Monroe um, late 80s slasher, the very cheesy one. And um, again, I did a commentary with Mark Ezra, who was the film's um, writer-director. And um, we had a very fun time talking about it and also basically talked about um, the background of the film and what happened to Simon Scudamore, who is the, the film's killer, Marty, um, as many people may know, he died um, from suicide, either accidental or on purpose, um, uh, fairly shortly after the film closed. So we, I talked to Marker about about him um, and about making the film, and I also interview um, uh, uh, Josephine, um, the woman who dies in the, the acid bath. I've interviewed her, and my interview is going to be on the liner notes. So yeah, that's going to be a fun can be a fun addition and both of those are out in July so you know not just because I'm involved with them because I don't get any money from it I just do it like Callum and um, his girlfriend Naomi I do it for, for the love obviously which is why we're doing the podcast today um, so yeah but keep an eye out for those and mm. there's more to come which I can't go into at the moment but um, keep them peeled. Excellent. I just want to say, like, on the Island of Death DVD, they have this fantastic extra uh, Callum models put together of... Uh, there's a, an iconic kind of folk song from the film uh, that's done in different versions by all these different types of Scottish bands. There's kind of a psychobilly version, an indie version, a techno version. Uh, it's, uh, I mean, when I looked at the DVD extras, that was the last, least interesting, I thought, extra on the disc, and I left it to last, but it's actually just so much fun. I mean, there's so much care put into the discs. I mean, I urge everyone to support this label because, um, you know, they're one of the few left who are putting out products like this. Yeah, absolutely, mm. absolutely. And they've got plenty more to come. And as I say, I can't go into any details about it until I get the green light, but, um, Ooh, yeah. It's a, as it's opposed to... I'm sorry. 
Is it, I was going to say hairdresser massacre. As opposed is that to Code Red, who is not putting out anything. <laughs> yeah, Code Red's putting that out, which means it'll never come out. What, um, hairdresser massacre or voodoo massacre? <laughs> Double bill. Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, we, I'm just, there could be a bidding war going on between Arrow and Code Red. Who knows? One dollar. <laughs> the rarest movies ever made. So. Exactly. Exactly. So, so, so is that is that everything, Eric? You want to? Well, I've, I've seen a few other things as well, but I think you've seen them as well. So I'll wait for them to be brought up. Okay. Okay. Yeah. How about you, Nathan? What have you been watching recently? Uh, well, I haven't watched that many slasher movies recently. Surprisingly enough, I did watch the Mother's Day remake, and I thought it was excellent. Because mm, mm. I've I've heard good things about that. Um, uh, is it is it very different without giving too much away? Is it very different from yes. the original? It's a hundred percent different. That's why some people will say, "Well, do you like the original or the remake better?" But I can't answer that because I love both of them, and to me, they're two completely different films. It's like apples and oranges. You can't really compare the two of them. Um, but yeah, the remake is, uh, is excellent. It's, uh, got a great performance. I think Rebecca de Mornay is awesome or sorry, Joseph, Rebecca de Mornay. I thought she was uh, awesome in that movie. Here it is. How about you get your toilet book out of, off the counter and I don't leap across and punch you in the brain. Is that, is that what she, one of her, a quote oh. from Rebecca de Mornay. It's a, a sign. He's quoting Seinfeld. Oh, right. Okay. Oh, sorry. <laughs> So. Far too American for me, I'm sure, for Eric, because we've been watching Eurovision yes. and stuff like that. So we're yes. keeping the, the, uh, the Euro end up, as it were. Yeah. Um, I, I saw that one as well, actually. Um, uh, it, it is very different. It's a home invasion movie, much along the lines of um, The House on the Edge of the Park or The Strangers or Funny Games. Uh, I probably wasn't as enthusiastic as Nathan about it. I, I do think it's very good. And Rebecca de Mornay, or however you pronounce her name, is terrific in it. Really, really good. Mm. Uh, I found it slightly run of the mill, though, I have to say. Okay. Okay. When's when's that due for release? Or is it out? I'm not I presume sure. It's out. I'm not sure either. I, it was supposed to come out to the cinemas here, but I don't really know. Yeah, it was it said on the internet uh, April 2011 for a cinema release, but okay. I don't know. Okay. Don't All right. Well, we shall see. I mean, but it's, it's certainly as good as the Last House on the Left remake, which got a big cinema release. Mm, mm, okay. Excellent. And anything else, Nathan? You seen? Uh, well, that's all I've seen. Although, since Eric brought up Funny Games, I watched it, like, uh, it's been a little while back, but I just want to tell everybody out there, I hate, hate, hate that movie. <laughs> I despise it. Like, I, I would burn every copy if I could. That's how much I hate it. The original, the, um, the remake? Uh, both of them. I think they're both pretentious films, like, mm-hmm. making us viewers supposed to feel guilty about watching violent films, and I'll watch violent films if I feel like it. If you don't mm-hmm. like it, then tough shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, <Ooh>. fair enough. <laughs> he's got some spunk today. He's feisty. He's like feisty. a yes. hey, Kitty Go can girl. scratch. Oh, okay. girl. Kitty can scratch. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you for that, Nathan. We shall have a have a a, a little breathe in and calm down. And um, how about you, Joseph? What have you been watching? Well, I've seen a few non-slasher films mm. uh, since we last recorded. Uh, Insidious, which I thought was fantastic. Uh, very creepy effective boo machine from the guys behind saw and it's probably the front runner for my favorite film of the year so far okay i also watched the norwegian i believe it is a uh, faux documentary troll hunter okay which yeah. which is essentially cloverfield without all the shaky camera work and the gi- and with gigantic trolls instead of a typical monster and it was quite exhilarating as well but uh on the slasher side I've seen what amounts to mostly excellent excellent features, uh, save for one, which I'll get out of the way right now. It's called Knock Knock, 
And it's another, <laughs> it's another direct-to-video abomination that I wholeheartedly suggest you avoid at all costs. Uh, it's basically like watching the jerks from Jersey Shore getting killed off one by one. And if that sounds interesting, believe me when I say it isn't. Uh, for the good slasher films, or slasher-esque maybe, uh, I watched the Vertige uh, Highlane mm. movie. Oh, yeah. Spoke did, about. You, did you enjoy it? Yeah, I thought it was fairly interesting, and it has some really excellent rock climbing footage. And mm. I think the whole you know first forty five minutes is really harrowing when they get up on that suspension bridge and it kind of starts collapsing. Mm. But I think the film kind of meanders a little bit towards the finale. But there's enough there for a recommendation, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, That's how I felt there's about some, it. There's uh, some three films that I really recommend, and the first is night warning which i'm ashamed to to admit that i've missed out on all these years right okay uh the one with susan tyrell yeah yeah and she gives like a a a gonzo performance just goes completely over the top insane Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. it was really i really really enjoyed that sorry Uh, is that the one that we call butcher baker nightmare maker that's it yeah Yeah. that's a much better title i like that title better it was a video Mm. nasty in this yeah 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 yeah. the other film i saw Oh, it's kind of a cross between Three's Company and Deliverance, and it's called Tucker and Dale versus Evil. And okay. the brilliant thing about <laughs> the brilliant thing about this movie is like you essentially have two sets of characters. Uh, you have two rednecks who are kind of actually rather likable, and then you have a group of these like partying teens, and um, like several misunderstandings arise, and the rednecks think that the teens are suicidal thrill killers, and the teens think the rednecks are like ass raping hillbillies. So. Okay. Uh, it's essentially a slasher film without a slasher, and many people die because of all these like Jack Tripper esque uh, misunderstandings. And um, it's it's an effective slasher comedy, and I really recommend it. Now, um, finally, the most surprising of the lot, as Nathan says, is the Mother's Day remake, which mm. I thought was really fantastic and uh, even better than the original. Um, Rebecca De Mornay, she kind of turns in this, believe it or not, Oscar worthy performance as the sociopathic mother character and the. Uh, Film kind of builds suspense by like exploiting like all of the characters' faults and them like turning on one another, and it leads to some really surprising twists along the way. Excellent, excellent. Oh no, it sounds sounds interesting. I'll have to check it out when it when it finally finally reaches these shores. Um, but um, anything else, Joseph? Those those are the ones you've seen recently, yeah. Um. Yeah, that's about it. I mean, I've seen a few like reruns of like Frasier or mm. stuff like that, but we won't talk about that. No, no, okay. <laughs> I just say, uh, I forgot to mention it, but because of your recommendation, Justin, I watched that as well, that Vertige High Lane. Mm. And my opinion's actually the same as Joseph's. I actually thought that the rock climbing scenes were actually a lot more suspenseful than, you know, the when the killer shows up. Yeah. Still yeah. a good movie, though. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's good to see the French still making slasher movies because they, when they do make good ones, they make very, very good ones. Um, I was going to say, I mean, I've just coming back to Insidious, as we say, it's not a, a slash movie by any stretch at all. Although, interestingly, we're covering Superstition um, this week, which is, you could argue, is not a slash movie. But I um, have done some interviews with a few people. And um, one of the one of the people I was going to say, actually, if you we're going to be talking to Steve Laporte, who did many of the special effects on um, on Superstition, as well as being the head super, uh, special effects person on Lost, uh, Terminator 2 and 3. He's working on the new Pirates of the Caribbean movie. But he started with low budget um, horrors like Demented, H- Home Sweet Home, that that fa- such a favorite and Superstition. Um, 
but of course that is um uh, a semi slasher in in so much that michael um o sabjel who was the um the writer producer um said it was really essentially a cross between friday the 13th and um, the amateur horror super suspiria um but just coming back to insidious you couldn't really argue that was a slash movie but um i i thought it was a fantastic time in the cinema it was brilliant fun the first two thirds of it i thought were amazing um proper scary fun you know cinema um i just kind of i just wish they'd been able to rein back that kind of slight pop culture um showing too much towards the end you know too many cartoonish images it just kind of it's it kind of spoiled it a little bit for me but ultimately i thought the the film was very good it's, it's something i'm going to um enjoy re- revisiting um, as far as slasher movies go, um, there's a few that I've been watching. I've been on a bit of a jalo kick at the moment, and I won't go into a great amount of detail, but um, if you're interested in my opinion on the films, you can read them on the Hysteria Lives website. Um, two I saw recently are completely miles apart. One was The Case of the Bloody Iris, which is um, the Edwidge Fenick and George Hilton um, uh, sort of pairing, one of the, one of the many. Um, and it is hugely enjoyable, hugely cheesy, the archetypical cheesy giallo. Um, it's almost as cheesy as Umberto Lenzo's Eyeball, which is fantastic fun as well. Um, the other one was The Perfume of the Lady in Black, which is a hallucinatory kind of dreamlike um, sort of esoteric slash um, giallo slasher um, with Mimsy Farmer, who was in Cat and Nine, Nine Tales, a Dario Argento movie. And they're both Four, very four Flies on Grey Velvet. Oh, was said. it? Sorry, you know, yeah, yes, you're yeah. quite right. Yeah, it's Four Flies on Grey Velvet. Um, and they're, they're both of them miles apart, but very much um, uh, recommended. Uh, the others I'd like to recommend is the the Blu-ray of the um, the Synapse films just put out of the Dawn That Drip Blood, mm. um, which if you had to take a straw poll of any slasher that was going to appear on um, Blu-ray, you wouldn't imagine the Dawn That Drip Blood would be um, right up there. Shot, I think, on 16mm on, um, on a tiny budget um, over the period of a year or two years. But it looks fantastic within the limitations. Um, and I listened to, it's got very interesting um, uh, sort of commentary uh, with the two directors talking about how the film came together and the challenges they had making a slash movie for basically no money back in 1981. Um, we won't go, I won't go into too much detail about that purely because we're likely at some point to cover that film. Um, and lastly, um, I rewatched, for some reason, I had a strange yearning to watch Friday the 13th, part seven, uh, The New Blood. And you know, funny enough, it's it always has been, and I've cemented, and I'm really in the minority here, but I really enjoy that film. Uh, it because it, it just I don't know what it is. I just I just think it's a whole lot of fun. Um, and um, controversially, I think I prefer it to part five, um, and even potentially part six as well. Um, so I don't know why it is. Maybe it's the the bitchy girl the character gets an axe in the head. Um, it's just full of fun dialogue. Um, you know, and it's a good time. And if it if it had all the gore left in, it would be right up there. I think. Um, so that, that that's what I've been watching recently. So, okay, and um, what we're going to do next? We're going to have a look at some feedback. And um, Joseph, have you got anything from your end? 
Uh, several, actually. Uh, <laughs> that wasn't meant to be rude. That wasn't meant to be rude. So please, please, I, Eric, put your mind back. Get your mind out of the gutter. I'm lost. I'm lost. I don't know what's going on here. Anyway, um, yeah. this is from Scott, who is actually my brother. He says, hey, guys, love the podcast. And not just because I'm related to someone on the panel, but because it really is purely entertaining and informative. I learn something new every time, and I'm laughing my guts out as well, no pun intended. Truly livens me up on a Monday while I toil away at my awful desk job. Keep up the great work. Scott. Uh, This is from Johnny Krug. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. He says, hello, gents. I just wanted to let you know how much I'm enjoying your podcast. I've been a horror fan forever, and slasher films are my absolute favorite subgenre. The problem is most shows don't focus on slashers and only include them every once in a while. Then I found the hysteria continues. Finding a podcast dedicated to just slasher films was like receiving a wicked great gift. You are my absolute favorite horror show on the web now, and I wait excited for each new episode. Keep up the great work. Your show is truly unique and awesome, and I hope it's around for a very long time. Take care, Johnny. And finally, I have another from... He didn't really leave his name, um, unless his name is Newty, N-E-W-T-Y, Newty. Okay, he says, hello, guys. I've listened to your last... To your first five episodes, and I love the show. Keep them coming. The interviews are awesome also. Keep up the great work. New tea. Excellent. So, excellent. Well, it. I've got a couple here. Um, the, the first one is from a guy called Cameron Parry, who says, Hi, guys. Just wanted to drop you a line in appreciation of the terrific podcast you guys produce every fortnight or so. Makes a drive hit to work here in Melbourne, Australia, all that more enjoyable. Definitely keep up the good work. Um, and also, um, there I have another message, the last one from someone called Robert. He says, hello, Justin. I just want to drop you a line to let you know that I really enjoyed your book, Teenage Wasteland. Still available in all good bookshops, of course. I am a huge slasher fan. Through your book, I discovered a website, Hysteria Lives, and the podcast. I was pleasantly surprised to see a podcast devoted to one of my guilty favourites, House of Death. I've listened to that episode and also the ones on curtains and happy birthday to me. The podcasts are always fun and informative and I can't wait to hear more. I'm also from Tennessee, so enjoy listening to my fellow Southerner, Joseph. Keep up the good work and thanks from Robert. So Thank where, you, Robert. So where are you think like you come from, death. Nathan? I don't know. But um... Nathan, Yeah, I guess uh... my accent's not good enough. <laughs> <laughs> he's from he's from uh... He's from Jersey, actually. I'm really surprised that they've had a love for House of Death. Not that I don't like it, but I'm just surprised that there's a lot of people out there who do seem to like it, too. It is. It is yeah. slightly bizarre, isn't it? But, um, but It's also, always I've... good to have more fans of that movie. Yes, mm. absolutely. Because it's, it's, it's better than Graduation Day. <laughs> well, oh, well, no. Um, no. no, no. <laughs> uh, I played the fifth. <laughs> Fair enough. But I'm, I'm surprised how many people from Tennessee that we're getting. There seems to be like a... Uh, an apex of slashing. Well, we got thunder. indoor plumbing down here now, okay. so uh, we got computers too. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Okay, well, well um, on that bombshell, should we move to our top threes? I think <laughs> is that what we had next? Top wait, threes. Wait, 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 wait. I'm going to give out the email address oh, as we always yeah, do. Okay. That is the full stop hysteria full stop continues at gmail.com. And for the American audiences, that is the dot hysteria dot continues at gmail.com. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to go on to our top threes. And as I said before, we had a suggestion um, to talk about our top three slasher movie scores. 
Uh, and we've taken that and we've run with it. Um, I think it's probably something we can come back to and revisit time and time again because there's so many good slash movie scores out there. Um, we haven't limited it just to scores. We've also um, put in there, uh, I think all of us got at least one song. And talking of songs, um, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but I put together a compilation of 80s um, slash movie songs on a CD called uh, Saturday Night Cleaver. And it's something I've been working on for years and years and years. And I finally kind of finished it off. Then I got cold feet because I thought, well, actually, I don't own any of these. So whether or not I could, I can, I wasn't planning to put it out in any commercial sense. But um, but if anyone's interested in listening to it, it's online. And um, just drop me a line at that um, email address or through Hysteria Lives, and I'll send you a link so you can download it. Um, but uh, without further ado, um, shall we play the songs first and then talk about them? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, first up, here's Joseph's number three. Ha ha, fooled you. <laughs> was that Toya that or was, Susie? That was Toya. <laughs> that was Don't Fall in Love, I said, by Toya Wilcox. Yes. <laughs> Actually, mm. that was Face to Face by Factor 4 from the film Island of Blood. Mm. A very, very rotten but catchy tune, I think. Yeah, it is. It definitely sticks in your head like a, <laughs> a knife. Um, <laughs> but, no, but it's, it's kind of um, from a film that... Um, I'm not. I'm not hugely a fan of, but I, I need to revisit at some point. But that yeah, that song is quite catchy. And what was the first song? Toya. Was, Don't fall in love. I said by Toya Wilcox. Was that yes. Toya? Mid eighties Toya. Yes. Oh gosh. Right. Okay. Oh, well. oh gosh. Oh gosh. Very good, wasn't it? We converted him. Eric. I, yeah. I, think... I thought it was Tiffany or something. Or... <laughs> no, it was, uh, Debbie Gibson. Debbie Gibson. Okay. Yeah. No, that was that was um, that was great. Thank you, uh, Joseph. Anything else you want to say about that oral masterpiece? The oral masterpiece. Yeah. You just oral or oral. Oral, oral. I think I'm going for. No, uh, I like Island of Blood, and like I said, that song kind of just sticks in your head, and once you hear it, you just can't get rid of it. So, uh, like herpes. You'll be, you'll be singing. You'll be singing it the whole day, and there's that whole bit where he's like, "Saw me, saw me, spear me, spear me, stab me, stab me." I didn't include that bit but uh if i did my favorite was boil me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> boil, boil me boil me boil me that's when the guy gets thrown into the swimming pool the heated swimming pool because uh, that's that that's that great bit in uh new year's evil isn't there with the the, the female dj says go boil your hair i know <laughs> which is kind of it must be some lost early 80s kind of um sort of thing but um, we, that's, we can we can move on now yeah know. okay okay well let's um go on to nathan here's your number three
Awesome. Thank you, Nathan. Well, so why did you choose that um, that wonderful funky tune? Uh, I, don't, I think it's because it's funky. You're right. I have no idea who sings that, but mm, y'all, y'all know what movie it's from, right? Maniac. Maniac. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's something um, to do with Kid Creole and the Coconuts. That's right. It is, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Because it's very, it's it's really incongruous, isn't it? Because Maniac's such a grim film, and that's uh, a really cheesy, funny disco, funky number saying, "Wear something nice in case you die tonight." However, it's it's it would be better suited. I think it's a great tune. Be better You'll leave something. a pretty corpse behind. Yeah, it's strange. <laughs> so, so why why did you choose that, Nathan? Just because it was funky or? Yeah, it's it's funky. It's kind of fun, and you know, I kind of agree that it's kind of a weird fit in a movie like Maniac. But I, yeah, I, I still kind of like it, and I find myself singing it or humming it sometimes. Mm. So <laughs> it's another one of those that kind of can get stuck in your head. Absolutely, yes, <laughs> like many things. Okay, so th- thank you, Nathan. <laughs> so, mm. We'll keep the entendres to a minimum today. I promise you, we haven't got on to no, number yeah. twos yet. But okay. Well, no, thank you for that, Nathan. And um, Eric, here's your... Um... Before you play it, Justin, oh, yeah. I, I'm, I've made a mistake here. When you said top three scores, I thought uh, of something different. So my number three is actually Ryan Giggs's goal in the FA Cup semi-final against Arsenal in 1999. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, because he runs past about five defenders and slots it into the top of the net and sends United through to the final. Oh, oh. So that's my, okay. that's my number three. Is it? Um, yeah. Because apparently there's um, some rumours about Ryan Giggs, isn't there, which we can't go into yes. at the moment. So we, mm. we won't talk about that in case no. we... No, I have it. no idea what you guys are talking about. <laughs> well, this is either. you need to move I'm to Europe. Lost. Yeah, so. <laughs> it's football related. Yeah, now play my number three. Okay, is, it something to do it with, is. is it something to do with soccer hooliganism? It's something to do with soccer players. And balls. Well, and yeah, they're go. all hooligans, so they're all Yeah, that's my number three. Can you guess the movie? Annie. Annie. Yes, it's from Annie. Of course it is. <laughs> it's the instrumental of Tomorrow. <laughs> now, that's... Uh, anyone know the movie? It's, it's Tenebrae. It is Tenebrae, yes. I know that uh, because I'm looking at it, uh, the, um, the sound yeah. name. But <laughs> it's, uh, it's Goblin, but not strictly Goblin. They're credited as um, Claudio Simonetti, Fabio mm-hmm. Bignatelli, and Massimo Marante. So it's not actually strictly Goblin. But uh, what I like about it is it's kind of very electronic and it's very much as if Depeche Mode had come along and scored a horror film in the early 80s. Mm. Uh, I like that sort of cold staccato feel about it, which sort of mirrors the the atmosphere of the film. Uh, and actually, the title of the film is Flashing. So, Justin, do you like Flashing? Title? Sorry? Do you like Flashing? Do I like Flashing? Yeah, the um, track, I mean, Flashing. I don't... Do I know... Sorry, I'm... <laughs> sorry, the track, the, track, the track is called Flashing. Oh, is it? It's, okay. Yeah, no, it's, it's not like, actually called Tenebrae like the main title. It's called Flashing. And I so he thought you, you were talking about flashing people. I told you yes. 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 So I just wanted to ask you if you enjoyed Flashing. I, I enjoy it very much, especially yeah. on, a, on a warm summer's evening. Um, yes. So I might put it on later, but um, no, thank you for that. <laughs> and, okay, well... I'm going to move swiftly on to my number three, and we're staying with the Italians, and here's my number three.
is. Does anyone know what that is? That Charlie's is Angels. Mc... Charlie's Angels. Is that it? is Macmillan and Wife. Macmillan and Wife. That's what it sounds like a TV does show. Or... Never heard of Macmillan and Wife. No, it sounds like Charlie's Angels to me. Part of it doesn't. It, it has to be a Jallo of some kind. I, I recognize the theme, but I can't pick. Uh, you know, it's on the tip of my tongue, like your ulcer. <laughs> yes, or, or something else. But. Um, but... <laughs> Jensen Ackles. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, Nothing. that is the that is the theme tune by Bruno Nicolai, who is one of, one of the great Italian um, composers for all the Jallos and all of the kind of um, the great cult movies, along with Ennio Morricone and um, Stelvio Cipriani. And um, I love that. It's from Eyeball, um, Umberto mm. Lenzi's uber cheesy Eyeball. Um, which is, I'd love to cover that at some point in the show because if you don't know, if you haven't watched Eyeball, you, you must watch it because it's fantastic. And it just very, very briefly, it's um, it's all set on the on the Spanish um, around the Costa Brava, uh, and it's a coach trip um, where an assorted motley crew of tourists go around, and one by one they're being picked off by. That's the movie you're talking about. Yeah. And I've seen it a long time ago, but basically they get killed one by one, but they decide to keep going on with their vacation. Exactly. Yes. Nothing nothing stops the coach trip. And every time right. every time they get back on the coach, um that's that theme tune comes on and um I, I do love it so. But I could I could spend a whole show talking about Italian movie soundtracks, um, you know, one of my big loves and um, I'm sure we'll come back to those. So so that's my number three. So I think it's time, Joseph, we see or hear your big number. Atmospheric. What? Anyone want to guess? I can't remember. I don't know. <laughs> Driving Miss Daisy? No. Yes, that's <laughs> exactly. Uh, composed by Morgan Freeman when he, when he wasn't acting. <laughs> actually, that is. Yes. Uh, actually, that is Jonathan Elias' score for Children of the Corn, which okay. I think mm. uh, the score makes that movie because the movie tends to get a little silly towards the finale, but. That score has always stuck with me ever since I was young, and I really, really love it. Mm, mm, well, it's good, good choice. It's, it's one of those because I haven't seen Children of the Corn for you know many years now, but it's, it's it, it did sort of it kind of got something in the back of my mind working, so I kind of recognised it. But um, aren't they supposed the first to be... forty-five minutes of the movie are, are, is really creepy, but then mm. at the end it kind of has all these really, really hideous special effects and really uh, cheesy. Uh, puns and it kind of goes off the rails but the, like I said that music really ele- elevates the film to like a higher level I think. Because they're supposed to be remaking it aren't they or they're talking about remaking it or they um, have I mean they have so many remakes and sequels of that yeah. series in particular I mean I've kind of lost track I mean I've only seen the first one and I saw like a brief moment of like number five or number six like mm. 20 years ago I don't know 
Okay, I have a problem here. Sorry. Okay. Children of the Corn is not a slasher film. And if this was the criteria, then I would have put I've Had the Time of My Life as my number. Children of the Corn is a slasher film. No, it's not. It's a bunch of kids slashing up people one by one. Okay, well, if Children of the Corn is a slasher movie, then I'm a supermodel called Susan. You are a supermodel. Probably. Well, we can't we can't see what you're wearing, um, Eric. Which maybe maybe for the best. But you're saying you should be able to put Dirty Dancing on. Yes. If I'd I known, I would have put I've had the time of my life as many. Does one. anyone die in, in Dirty Dancing? There is an illegal abortion in us, though. I know Patrick I'd... Swayze is dead now, but that doesn't count, Eric. So mm. it's not a, a slash movie. So yeah, well, neither is Children of the Corn. To be fair, there. I die every time. Hey, hey. hey. <laughs> Well, I, think, I die every time I watch Dirty Dancing, so there. Okay. Well, before, before, <laughs> before Joseph comes behind Eric and punches him in the ring, I think we'll move on to number, Nathan's number two. atmospheric one there um nathan do you want to tell us a little bit about that uh well that's uh by mark donahue and it's for the anthology the 1989 anthology uh after midnight mm. and yes eric i know what yes. you're thinking i know you're <laughs> I thinking think the same yeah. thing uh but i mean i realize it is on the line uh but uh it, it's the closest i'm going to get to an all slasher anthology I mean, the first one features a killer who likes to hack people up with hedge clippers and a couple getting trapped in his house. The second one is basically a slasher with dogs stalking these four girls one by one. Um, And the last one is a maniac stalking an all-night telephone operator. So, you know, I guess you can't call it a full-on slasher, but it was close enough for me. Um, Not as close uh, as dancing, but close enough. Yeah. Well, I think I think um, <laughs> this is fair enough. I think we're going to come back and um, look at these in the future, anyway, aren't we? I mean, we're going to do more of these because there's, there's loads more um, to do. But um, I think we've got another atmospheric one coming up, haven't we, Eric? With your is it atmospheric-ish? Your, yes, your big number two. Here we go. Eric, and do you want to tell us a little bit about your choice? Well, that's uh, Rick Wakeman, him mm. off of Yes, yes. big, yes. big, big yes. 70s prog rock band, uh, surprisingly scoring a, a tuppence slasher film from 1980 called The Burning. 
Um, what I like about that is, I mean, there's a lot of films around that time had sort of one man and his synthesizer doing the score. And I mean, the burning does sound really dated now, I have to say, but the, the melody is quite good. Production values are kind of nostalgic. Uh, I'm just really surprised they got somebody of his caliber, if you want to say that about Rick Wakeman, yeah. to uh, score the film. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I think it's quite, I mean, considering he could have done such a like, really wanky kind of prog rock thing for yeah. it, which you would, because, you would have done, but yeah. um, to actually do something that was actually very much of its time, wasn't it? It was very Eric, kind of timely. Yeah. Eric, I have a question for you. Yes. You are, you, you, are you an owner of a lonely heart? I'm not the owner of a lonely heart, no. Uh, and that is, the only, that is the only yes song I could sing off the top of my head. I thought I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not familiar with any of their 17-minute epics well, from the 70s. Take it away. Go ahead. Owner of a lonely heart. I was just go. kidding, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> we, can always, we can always edit that out or edit Please. something even yeah. worse in, perhaps. Yeah. So, something, well, something worse, like a Susie film. Well, I, I don't think that would be worse, um, Joseph, would it? But um, has, has actually, have Susie and the Banshees appeared in the soundtrack of any films? Yes. Out of Bounds, the great they, 80s... Uh, Jeepers Creepers, didn't they do Susie's song in the, on the radio when he was flipping the radio station? That was Peekaboo, yeah. Well, they didn't, oh, right. it, was, yeah. it wasn't them singing it. They they cheaped out and got some cover bands to do it. But yeah. um, in have you seen Out of Bounds? It's got Anthony, what's his name, Anthony Edwards, is it? From um, It's a great 80s thr- teen thriller, thriller. It's not no. a horror movie, but um, it's got Susan the Banshees doing Citizen Dust in a L.A. Oh, club. I love that song, yeah. And it's, but it's a great film. If you've not seen Out of Bounds, it's, it's got loads of good music on the soundtrack. Um, it's, it's the epitome of of teenage 80s thriller movie. I mean, it's, it just screams mid-80s. It's, it's really worth seeing, uh, and not just to see Susie. But um, apart from that, I don't know. But on to my number two is you've all been very, very reserved with very atmospheric numbers. Mine's just a little bit more on the cheesy side. the theme tune to um, another film and I imagine Eric might tip a table here because that's not strictly a slash movie either um, of Midnight the the John Russo mm. um, sort of witchcraft kind of semi slasher in the same way as um, Children of the Corn is a semi slash movie but Dirty Dancing isn't a slash movie but mm. I, I just love it because it's kind of it's the, the lyrics fantastic um, it's kind of 
I, whoever had the idea of doing a kind of a folk pop song to to um, accompany quite a uh, cheesy but also quite a violent film and quite a sleazy film, I think it's kind of great juxtaposition between the two. Um, is someone eating Tic Tacs? Is that you, Eric? Oh, sorry, that was me sopping on my rum and coke. Okay. And that was the sound of my ice cubes. Was it? Okay, that's all right. I thought you were eating Tic Tacs <laughs> or something, but I wasn't doing to pull you out on that. At least it's not a chunky Kit Kat app. No, it's not, not a chunky kick okay. That's for later. That's for later. Okay. <laughs> um, so yeah, but that's my that's my number three. So we're coming up to. What? Sorry, it's your number two. Number two. Sorry. And yes. uh, thanks for telling us, Nance. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Now, Joseph, here's your number one. So like Brian Eno. Yeah. Mm. That is uh, Pino Dinaggio from Body Double. It's a very Uh uh, kind of a romantic slash thrilling kind of setup to the action that takes place in Body Double, uh, Mm. which is essentially on the line, again, as a slasher film. It's more of a rear window ripoff. But uh, no, that entire movie, uh, the Pino Dinaggio soundtrack, I I had, you know, Thoughts of which what could I what could I pick what could I, I mean every p- piece of music he does in the film is really 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 well well done, but I went with the whole telescope theme of him watching uh, the girl because it sets up the movie. Whoa, that was crazy! Did you hear that? Yeah, yes, sorry, it's, it's, yeah. <laughs> that was weird. Okay, that's, that's that's the Jesus and Mary chain. Was it? No, it's a cat. Um, oh, right. Right. <laughs> whenever oh, I do was a podcast, you? I thought that was me. No, whenever I do a podcast, um, I, the cats always decide to. have got one on my lap, and one's just walked in and shaken her Susie bangle oh. to me. So, wow. so, uh, so we got some <laughs> pussy on the show. <laughs> my two cats also make appearances, but y'all don't hear them. Well, I t- funny enough, I did because I didn't know what that was from, but it, I thought it sounded more akin to, I don't know, sort of um, some kind of softcore 80s porn movie. Well, uh, which essentially Body Double kind of has that yeah, softcore yeah, of course, yeah. porn thing going yeah. on. Excellent, excellent. Well, no, thank you. I mean, I think it's really interesting. I think um, it'll be interesting if people listen to this and if they want to feedback about what... Um, their what would be their top threes, and I think this is something we probably could come back quite easily to to, to do again. And um, so it'll be interesting to to see what we come back to. Um, uh, should we go on to Nathan? Your your number one. Yes. Here it is. Nathan, do you want to take us through that? Uh, yes, that is um, the theme for Alice Sweet Alice, a.k.a. Mm-hmm. Communion. It's by Stephen Lawrence. 
Uh, I love all the music in that movie. It's actually hard to pinpoint one of my favorite, you know, pieces of music from that film. Um, I think it gives a right kind of mix of um, scary and even kind of sad and depressing, you know, the the tune in it. Because, I mean, when you watch Alice, Sweet Alice, it's a scary film, but it also is it's kind of a sad film, too. I mean, all the trauma that the poor mother in that film must endure, like, during the whole film. Mm-hmm. Everybody around her that she's close to starts getting killed, and, you know, she spends most of the movie in tears and in hysterics. So I thought the score really matched the movie. Yeah, it's it's a fantastic movie, isn't it? And um, it's a shame Alfred Sol didn't really do a great deal after after that film. Um, he yeah, did, he should have done more. He did Pandemonium, didn't he? The kind of early eighties yeah. slasher spoof. But um, it would have been good to actually seen him do a straight ahead slasher film as well, which I kind of Alice, sweet Alice, I kind of guess is. But um, yeah, it's it's one if you haven't seen, um, it's definitely worth checking out. So that's a very good number one. Thank you, Nathan. And I've got a feeling that um, Eric's is going to be taking us in a slightly different direction. Indeed. Do you want to tell us about that then, Eric? That that is the tight denim tacular uh, song, uh, "Touch Me All Night Long." And now, can you name the singer? Mark Patton. No. Oh no. no sorry. He's, he's, a, the he's the dancer. Yeah, he's the dancer. Okay. <laughs> Who who's singing the song? Can anyone remember? Is that Sheila? What's her face? No. It, actually, I, I I thought you were going to say uh, Kathy Dennis because she had a hit with it around 1990-1991. But that version is actually by Wish featuring Fonda Ray. And what I like about that is that not only is the song really, really catchy and very 80s and kind of the sort of my cup of tea back then, but also uh, when you watch it on the film, you get to see somebody close a drawer with their arse. <laughs> have you have you been trying that out yourself? I have tried it out and it is very effective. Is it? Okay. <laughs> yeah. What the fuck are we talking about? What We're talking about fuck? Nightmare. Sorry, I should have mentioned that that is from Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, Freddy's Revenge. Oh, where Mark, yeah. Mark Patton is dancing on the bed, closing a drawer with his arse, putting on funny shades. I forgot shades. about that. Yeah, yes. Yeah. It's only one of the best scenes in the movie. You know? exactly. It is one of the best. <laughs> one of the best scenes in the movie. It's Yeah. That, <laughs> I, it, we were talking about Guilty Pleasures a few weeks ago, and that would be one of mine's is Freddy's Revenge. I just love it from start to finish. Absolutely. Well, it's been a while since I've seen it. I need to watch it again. I watched it recently, actually. It was. It I was have to go. There's fun. a Jesse on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> I finally understand what that means now. <laughs> I had to school him in the art of Jesseisms. Yes. Okay. Well. well Just we, like I also had to school him in the art of uh, telling him what a uh, friend of Dorothy is, and he should know. <laughs> no, I knew. I knew what a friend of Dorothy is. I just didn't understand why it's called friend of Dorothy. Right. Okay. Well, see, there's, anyway, there's anyway. An a, There's an episode of Married with Children that should have given it away because I know how you're a fan of Married with Children, where Peg goes out dancing with uh, the gay guy um, who's cheating on his husband, and he says, "Peg, you are the most beautiful woman here, except for my mother and except for Judy Garland, of course." And I figured uh, you would have picked up on that. No, I didn't. Oh, well, what kind it's, of, kind it's of gay e- man are you? It's, it's an I education. I have a thick skull. Okay, that's all I gotta say. <laughs> Right. Well, I was just going to say, um, as we draw this neatly to an end, um, we're probably going to get some flack for not choosing some of the the big guns, because now we're up to, there's only one choice, my choice left, and we haven't done, well, bar, we haven't done the theme tune to, proper theme tune to A Night on Elm Street, 
or Friday the 13th, or things, but of course we could come back to those. But of course, what um, Slasher Movie score would be complete without this? Um, John Carpenter's uh, score to the original Halloween. No, that's Rob Zombie's score to Halloween. <laughs> mm, yes, well, we won't we won't go there. We, we, <laughs> we keep on mentioning that abomination every single week, or that dual abomination. Um, but that was the the very simple and very effective um, theme to Halloween. And I don't know; it's kind of a well known story. But with Halloween, when John Carpenter showed the film to an executive at 20th Century Fox, I think it was, without the music. And she turned to him and said, that's just not scary. That's just the least scary film I've ever seen. And then he put the music to it. And then, I don't know if he showed her again, but the film just came alive with the music. And the music just drives that film forward. Um, it's It still gives me shivers. And I always remember, actually, when we went to see Halloween H2O, which obviously is not a patch on the original or the, the, the first sequel, but um, the moment when Laurie Strode, Jamie Lee Curtis, suddenly just turns and goes after um, Michael Myers with the axe, then that theme music suddenly just comes in. And I just remember the audience applauding. It was just that kind of... It, it, it's that music that stays with you. And, um, you know, and I couldn't let uh, this um, top three scores go without... You know, it must be my number one favourite score to a slash movie. And, of course, my number one ever favourite movie. Well, it's, it's like you said, there's so much music to choose from. I mean, I'm sure we'll get back to mm, even more yeah. in the future. You know, the the thing about Halloween, too, is there are so many tracks in that movie that are so good. My favourite is when Jamie Lee Curtis is doing that slow walk across the street. Um, mm. And, the you know, the tune they're playing then. Is it is it Laurie's theme? Is that I what think it's it is, called? yeah. Do you want to do that one, or is that Jaws? No, no. Jaws. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I'm not very musical, so I can't. I don't. I won't be able to um, free. I am. Um, I actually prefer the um, the revamped synthesized score to Halloween Two myself. I think it, it it takes a good tune. It makes it even better, especially when you uh, when it's overlaid on those opening credits of Halloween Two, where the skull mm. splits in half, and there's a uh, oh, yeah. well, sorry, where the pum- pumpkin splits in half, and there's a skull inside. I think it's really, really effective. It, it is. I listened to that, and I just thought it'd be a good one to go go with. But um, I decided to go with with yeah. the kind of the original. Um, can I just say it would have been my number one as well? Except we we uh, didn't want to overlap too much, so I chose more 
off beat ones. Yes. And I'm surprised nobody went for Friday the 13th because that would have been in my top three as well if I'd known that nobody else was going for it. Um, you know, any, any of the scores from one, two, three or four, which yeah. uh, I, th- I think are really good. Well, I'm sure we come back to those. I'm sure we come back to those. So, well, those are our top three at the moment. I mean, they're kind of random choices of things, Subject think, to change. Subject to change, absolutely. So I'm sure we'll come back to those at some point in the future. Um, I think moving on, um, we are going to, before we get on to talking about superstition, our feature presentation of the week, we're going to um, have a question from Joseph. Um, what's the burning issue? All right. Are there any slasher films that uh, the three of you have seen that you've done a complete 180 on? Like, uh, say you watched it and you loved it, and then you watched it again and then you hated it, or vice versa? Who wants to go first? Uh, <laughs> Justin. Well, well, I was trying to think about this, and it's, it's funny because um, all I can think back is when I was 14 or 15, um, uh, when I was kind of getting into sort of horror movies, slash movies, when I first started to get to see them on video. And um, there's a couple of films. One, probably the most pronounced, and again, is, is it arguably a slash movie, and it, it isn't. But is it arguably a giallo? And I say it is arguably a giallo, and I've talked about this before, is, is um, Suspiria, Dario Argento Suspiria. And I saw that uh, on video when I was about 14 or 15 with a friend of mine. And we hated it. We just thought it was a complete pile of shit, complete pile of crap. And I didn't touch it for years after that until um, maybe 15 years ago or so. Um, I finally watched it again and realised what an amazing movie it was. Now, of course, that's all down to the fact that I was a 14-year-old boy who just wanted to see exploding heads and things like that. I wasn't really interested in any subtlety. And, of course, Suspiria is not subtle. But also the fact is, um, like many of the videos that were around in that time after the video Nasties Panic, had pretty much all of the gore cut out of them. Um, for instance, not another sla- not a slash movie, but Living Dead at Manchester Morgue was re-released on video with no violence at all. And I just remember watching it, thinking, "What is? What was the fuss?" You know, I just didn't understand. Of course, had everything taken out. Um, the only other film that I've done a, a complete one eighty on is or three sixty on is is. Um, is I think it's probably pieces actually again for similar reasons I saw a very cut version and I think I just come off the back of watching films like Friday 13th and Halloween and all those films I took very seriously at the time and I watched pieces and I just thought it was complete rubbish um, and of course I've grown to love it for the trash epic that it is today and I've learned to accept and embrace those kind of trash aesthetics so for me, those are the ones I've done a kind of complete um, 180 on. I don't know if there's any films that I've absolutely loved at the time and I've gone back to and thought were a bit dull. I'm sure there probably are, but um, I'll have to think about those. So you know, that's my, my tuppence, as it were. Uh, before I ask anyone else, I'm going to say mine was probably The, uh, the Final Terror. Um, I watched that. Um, I don't remember if I rented it or if it was on television, but I, I hated it, and... You know, I watched it again, and I kind of liked it. And the more I watch it, the more I pick up on things that I like about it. But um, I, th- I think for me, that's one of the ones I've done a 180 on. Uh, what about you, Nathan? Uh, well, the biggest one that I can remember is uh, Class Reunion Massacre. Ooh, that one too. I forgot about that one. That's a good one. Uh, when I first watched it, which has been probably over 10 years ago, I hated it. I mean, I, I couldn't stand it. I, th- I thought it was one of the worst movies I'd seen at the time. And then, I don't know, it was a few years later, something, you know, just made me want to watch it again, and I did, and I, I was like, well, I picked, there was a few things about it that, 
you know, we're not as bad as I remembered. And then, I don't know, it was about a year after that, I decided to watch it again. So finally I was like, why am I watching this so many times? Oh, yeah, because I think I like it now. <laughs> but it's it's I actually really enjoy it now. I think it's uh, very moody and atmospheric. It's got a good soundtrack. You know, it does get kind of muddled, you know, towards the end with the whole extra thumb and, and all that business. But I still really like it. I think it's a creepy movie. And our Dancing Eric. What about you, Dancing Eric? <laughs> Me, Dancing Eric. Um, uh, Nate, uh, sorry, Justin stole actually two of my ideas because I too hated pieces and Suspiria when I saw them first. Uh, I saw them in the mid-80s when my only exposure to slasher films were the sort of slicker produced American productions. Uh, I, had, I had no appreciation for kitsch back then. So Pieces was uh, rubbish. It was a one out, a zero out of 10 movie for me. Suspiria completely let me down because it wasn't the films I was expecting. And it, it was only until I saw it in widescreen on a big, on a big television that uh, I began to appreciate it a bit more. Uh, but what I find with slasher films is that my first impression is usually the one that sticks with me. Uh, it's it's other films of other genres. I do complete 180s on. Uh, I, I remember particularly Alien Resurrection. I loved when I saw it in the cinema, but now I can't stand it. And if I ever see it again, it'll be too soon. Uh, but with slasher films, um, I tend to do 45 degrees, more than the 180s. I have to say. I mean, I used to love Jason Lives Friday the 13th Part Six. That was one. That was the first Friday the 13th film I saw, and I remember thinking it was the best film ever for a long time and whisper this, I made a copy of it on VHS, but, um, and I watched it. (laughs) I watched it. I watched it. (laughs) I watched it nonstop for about three minutes. He does frown on me. He frowns on me for many reasons. (laughs) He doesn't doesn't like my penchant for chunky Kit Kats for starters. Um, Uh, but uh, no, I, I think what happened to me with Jason Lives was I overwatched it. I watched it too many times and now I'm bored with it. But also I don't like the humour in it. I don't like the, the comedy elements. Uh, so that was a film that I once loved. And now I, I don't hate it now, but I, I just I'm tired of it, weary of it. I, I don't go near it anymore, really. Well, it's too bad that that's going to be the next movie we, we cover. <laughs> Aww. Uh-huh. I would watch it again for the sake of the podcast. Okay, well, that's that's the fallen on that big sword, uh, Eric, mm. um, which I'm sure you do most evenings. So, um, are we are we are we finished with our our questions, or is there anything else you want to do? You want no, to, no, uh, go ahead. Move okay. On, move on. Uh, oh, okay. Oh, okay. Well, what I'll do is I think it's time to that we go into our feature presentation. So before we do that, um, well, we're going to do that, and to start that off, I'm going to play the trailer for Superstition. All those stories about murders and ghosts. It's haunted, they say. That's scaring. Two kids were killed out there. One kid was gutted and slashed to death. The other microwave. There was a warning. There are many houses on this foundation. All of them and their tenants come to bad ends. And only one man listened. Well, when did this violence begin? There was a legend. We want justice! Two ladies had already started? 
is a superstition, and will anyone survive? And there, can you guess that was superstition? Um, and to, as I kind of, to take us into it, I have in my hand, if you can hear, can you hear this? That is the sound of a, an ancient clamshell um, of my much cherished VTC, um, which is a video label back in the UK, Precert. And if you're not from the UK, then Precert is um, essentially, that was the, the videos um, that were around before certification, um, before censorship was put into video back in the mid 80s. Um, so around the time of the video nasty. So this kind of predated them. That's why they're called pre-certification. And it's a beautiful, as all the VTC um, videos were, like a golden box. And I have in my, where I'm sitting, I have the Scaremaker, I can see The Outing, which is aka Scream, Zombie Holocaust, Changeling, Revenge of the Bogeyman, uh, The Black Cat, what else, Incubus, and The House of Exorcism, uh, my little collection of VTCs. But Superstition is probably my most cherished um, one of those and I'm going to read the back of it and of course if you've listened to these podcasts in the past you'll know that we're going to be exploring pretty much every crevice as it were of these films so it's going to include spoilers so if you haven't seen this film then proceed with caution um, the back of the, the video box says in 1784 the witch El Ronda Sharak is sentenced to death by crucifixion crucifixion? crucifixion sorry I should, I should know better being a Catholic or a very lax <laughs> Catholic. But anyway, but as Satan's daughter, her evil spirit cannot be destroyed and lurks into the lake known as Black Pond. 200 years later, a series of bizarre killings shocked the area and the young Reverend David Thompson assists the police with their investigations while installing the new vicar and his family into the house by the lake. The last family who lived there all met with gruesome deaths. The Reverend's daughter is attacked and his son meets with a hideous death. And while Thompson researches the horrible facts of Alondra's past, the rest of the family and the chief of police are brutally murdered. So, that is Superstition. Now, again, this film is something, um, a film, I must have watched it 20 or 30 times. Probably saw it, it came out in video in the UK in 1983, which is the date on this video here. Um, it's probably the date I first saw it, so we're talking many years ago. Um, it was a staple of our local video shop. Um, I only found out recently that it was a Section 3 release in so much um, Section 1 and 2 were... The, the Section 1 was the video nasty, Section 2 was films liable for seizure and prosecution, whereas Superstition was actually Section 3, which was liable for seizure but not necessarily prosecution. 
Um, having said that, I was able to get hold of it um, when I was 14 or 15. And unlike Suspiria, this film really hit the spot for me. And it still does. You know, I watched it again this afternoon, uh, this time on DVD. Uh, and it's it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Um, I've we, Coming up, we've got an interview, as I said before, with Steve Laporte, who did the some of the special effects on the film. But also on Hysteria Lives, when you listen to this podcast, um, up on the Hysteria Lives um, webpages will be interviews with Carol Goldman, who played the witch um, in the flashback sequences. Uh, And Steve talks about in his interview about how he also worked on the howling and how they did um, the bladder effects. That's what the producers wanted. And of course, if you were around back then, as I was, we knew that every video, we were looking for them to outdo each other. Um, And you had all the creature features like American Wealth in London with the special effects, um, you know, just going one on top of the other, everyone trying to outdo each other. And they kind of tried that with superstition with the witch's face kind of, you know, um, the bladder effects under her face. Her face was kind of growing and and shifting. Um, And Carol talks about the makeup effects and how she got the part as the the witch, um, which is really interesting. And also, as interesting, another interview on the site is with the writer-producer Michael um, O'Sabjel, which I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Uh, He talks about how he got involved in the film and um, one of the, the the best bits in the film for me um, is the beginning ten minutes, which if you've seen the film, um, you'll you'll know very well. And it starts with, uh, you know, kind of basically classic slasher movie setup uh, with two teenagers necking in a car, um, and then suddenly a face appears at the window. They scream and drive off. It's two young t- uh, or teenage boys who have been playing a joke. But they get trapped inside the house. Um, one is decapitated by the witch and his head explodes in the microwave oven, which drives his friend to jump through a window, which slams down on top of him and cuts him in half with his legs falling bloodily to the floor outside. Um, and as you can imagine, as a 14, 15-year-old kid, and I used to watch these. We used to, I, Americans probably won't know this term, but I expect Eric will. It, we used to bunk off, which is basically mm-hmm. play hooky from school. Um, on one afternoon a week and we'd hired these films and we'd all sit around and scream and laugh and have a great time and it's one of my you know when I it's not my misspent youth because I think it's very well spent youth for me certainly but um, it was one of our staples and we watched this film many many times Um, I've got lots more information about the film um, to talk about but uh, I was wondering you guys what did you feel about revisiting superstition how about you Eric yeah, uh, like you said, I think the opening is really, really strong. And I think that is a possible flaw in the film is that I think it peaks a bit too early. I think the, the those two teenage boys get killed and then the the death with the circular saw, that all comes in the first 20 minutes. And then after that, I think it struggles to match those moments. Although I still do think it's a terrific movie. Now, I only caught this about 10 years ago for the first time and if I saw this when I was 13 or 14 I imagine it would probably be higher up my list of favourite movies because it would be exactly the type of thing I was looking for back then it has the gore and it has the silliness and it it doesn't take itself too seriously and it's quite short it's only 80 minutes so it doesn't have to stay it's welcome Um, it's got a huge body count I mean everyone practically died and it doesn't spare anyone I mean kids 
mothers, priests, everyone dies in this film. Uh, you know, equal opportunities. Um, <laughs> it is very much. But I, I mean, again, I'm having issues with whether this is a slasher movie or not, Justin. Mm. I'm afraid. Um, well, I would say it is a slasher movie. Definitely, it was. It, I know it's borderline. But when I spoke to Michael Osabjel, he said the idea behind it was they were very much looking to do a supernatural slasher movie, and so that was their intention to make a slasher movie, but with a, a supernatural villain. So therefore, that is that is my get out clause and why I you know I think <laughs> well no I don't I don't mind because I, I do really like the film so as I said I like the music as well the music that you played at the top of the show it really mm. reminds me again going back to Goblin it reminds me of their music maybe for something like Deep Red you know that pulsating drum and piano beat that happens whenever a bit of action kicks into the film yeah, it's, uh, it's quite it's quite unusual for the time because as I said earlier it was either a man and a synthesizer or else it was a big orchestral score were were the par for these type of films so it was quite unusual it gives a kind of kind of a European feel. It's, it's David Gibney um, did the, the music of this film. He didn't actually do a great deal else, but I thought the music is one of the strongest aspects of the film. I thought it was very, very effective, very effective. Mm. Um, how about you, Joseph? How did you find the film? I like Superstition. I watched it again last night. And um, uh, the one thing I wanted to mention is the very beginning scene. I mean, Immediately, you can have a drinking game with that. how many times that one guy says the name Artie. He's like, Artie, Artie, where are you, Artie? Yes. Artie, yeah. Artie, Artie, are you there, Artie? Um, if, if you go along with that, you will be properly hammered by the time the opening sequence is done. But uh, no, uh, what I like about the film is um, it kind of reminds me of like a precursor to uh, Final Destination with some of the death scenes, like yeah. the circular saw. Mm. Uh, it has like this Rube Goldberg like cause and effect thing where the circular saw falls and hits the floor and ricochets into the priest's throat and it saws through his throat and there's blood gushing out it kind of reminded me of that whole uh the unseen specter of death causing these uh uh these massive gory death scenes and it, it has that it has sort of a uh kind of a brooding atmosphere it seems like it's a companion piece to the incubus they have that mm. gothic house and uh the they both employ flashbacks, so like religious flashbacks, to uh, accentuate their evil. And um, it has a really, really short running time, so it, it never really, you know, wears out its welcome. And uh, like, you know, like you both said, everyone dies. Uh, they kill kids. They kill the priest. Uh, even the hero. I mean, we're getting into spoiler territory, mm-hmm. obviously. Even the hero gets his in the end. Um, I think the one thing I don't. I think the one thing that kind of soured me on it, I mean, I, I really liked the film, but uh, towards the end when it kind of gets into the, uh, when the, the hero is running around the house with the cross and he's trying to dispel the evil, the, the score in, in that particular part of the film, I thought it was a little, I mean, it seemed a little too upbeat to, to me for such a moody film. And if, if I had to, you know, give it its marks, that would be the one thing I would say about it. But other than that, I really enjoyed the film. Um, you know, I'd give it maybe like a six out of 10. Oh, only a six. Right. Okay. Well, how about you, Nathan? What's your thoughts? Thank you, Joseph. Uh, I really enjoy superstition a lot. And for some reason, I've never quite held it up as an eighties classic. And I think Eric finally, uh, what Eric said, I mean, I finally realized what it is, is if I would have seen it as a kid, you know, that I'm like, Eric, that's the kind of movie I wanted to watch as a kid. And I never watched it then. I didn't watch it till I was older and more cynical, I guess. Uh, I mean, I still really enjoy it. And it seems to be one of those movies that kind of teeters on the line of being scary and cheesy. 
You know, I mean, like there'll be like a, a scene I think is pretty creepy, and then it's kind of followed up by something that is very cheesy. Um, and it's a really entertaining movie, and like Eric and Joseph have said, you know, it's got a short running time. It's got a huge body count. I mean, you know, just about everybody I remember in that movie dies. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's got some really good death scenes, you know, the circular saw scene. And it's also got my favorite bit of dialogue of all time, which you played in the intro, you know, when the Shut two your young, bitchy mouth. I was yeah, going to mention <laughs> Uh, Crystal and Alexis wannabes, you know, yeah. dynasty, pre-dynasty, you know, shut your bitchy mouth. Oh, I love that scene. I love that scene. I've, I've got the, shall I just play it for you here? I've got it here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, sure. Daddy's down there. He knows what to do. Daddy always knows just exactly what to do. Cheryl, don't. Especially when he wants to run lives. That's a crack up, isn't it? He's a burnout and he's trying to run my life. Cheryl... He can't do anything right. He's a waste, Mom. A burnout. Shut your bitchy mouth! Yes. There's a memorable <laughs> line of dialogue there. I love that dialogue so much. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a jewel in the crown. So, I mean, what, 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 have you got any other... I mean, we can come back to um, talking about it. I just wonder if we're talking about the, the special effects. Um, it might be worth um, going to the interview now with, with Steve Laporte um, and then coming back and talking about the film a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Sounds yeah. good. Does that sound good? Okay. Um, well, um, here we go. today to be joined by Steve Laporte, one of the hardest working and best regarded special effects artists in Hollywood today. He's worked on such blockbusters as Terminators 2 and 3 and was key special effects makeup artist on Van Helsing, the makeup department head on TV's Lost and countless countless more. But today we're going back much earlier in his career to the early 1980s and his work in the horror genre and specifically superstition. Thanks for joining us today Steve. Well thank you for having me, it's nice to uh... No, someone remembers something I did so long ago. Well, it's about 30 years ago now, isn't it? Um, I, just... I actually got married on Superstition, and we just had our 30th you? anniversary. Oh, fantastic. Week. Excellent. Well, I was going to say, your, your first credited role was for Demented, I believe, in 1980. Um, so I was going to, how did you get involved in the special effects um, business? Um, yeah, you know, even quite a, some of the names of the films I've worked on were released under different titles mm. in which I worked on them. So, I mean, originally Superstition was called Witch. Yeah, that's right. It, it got released yeah. in the UK um, uh, quite a few years later under the title The Witch. So mm-hmm. it's interesting to know that was the original title. Yeah, it was... Uh, well, I started off uh, doing low-budget films in the late 70s, actually 79. I moved to California and... and uh, I guess right after Christmas of 78. And uh, for four years prior to that, I had been traveling as a clown with Raving Brothers Circus. Oh, really? Which got me into makeup. Um, I originally was going to be a commercial artist. I went to technical school out of high school and had a scholarship, which led to you know, a waiting period to start college. And that summer, the Ringling Brothers Circus came to my hometown and held auditions for clowns. 
and not really seeing that it was something long-term, thought it was just for the short period they were there. I said, sure, I'll act crazy for for a week in front of uh, audiences, no one will know who I am. Yeah. And kind of subsequently found out that it was an audition for the Clown School, which is a training ground for the circus arts. Um, a few months later, I got a call and a letter that I had been accepted, which really changed my life forever. It probably is responsible for making me, you know, putting me into the field that I am today. So off to the circus I went, and of course there you're introduced to, you know, makeup. Um, some special effects, we, they learned, they taught us about pyrotechnics, prop making, uh, shoe making, wig making, you know, of course, makeup, uh, you know, comedy movement, um, how to put together routines and props. So you're bombarded with this kind of world of creativity. And not soon after getting a contract after you go through the, con- to, through the con- clown college process, you have to get a contract to travel on the show. Well, I, I was ordered a contract and spent four years traveling on the show. And during that time, I started studying makeup, sculpting, making small prosthetics in my tiny little cubicle on the train. Eventually, after two years, I moved over, I bought my own motor home and had a little bit more space to work, and I still continued my studies in makeup. And after about four years there, decided, you know, it's time to go to California. We had been in California several times, and I had made some mutual friends in the in the film business who were doing makeup on TV shows, and would go and watch them do the makeup, and eventually thought this is the place to go. So after I moved, left the circus and came to California, I came and started just making the rounds, and I, I met a gentleman by the name of Tom Berman. Mm, um, I met a guy who no one knew at the time called Stan Winston. Mm-hmm. Uh, another guy named Rick Baker, he was working out of his garage and answered the door barefoot, Right. Uh, so those those are the people that I met, and after being here for a while, I did get a job on the tour at Universal doing makeup on the Land of a Thousand Faces makeup show, which led to a, a side job there doing the makeup on the Incredible Hulk character, which had been introduced into the show. So it was a full body makeup, full prosthetics on the forehead and nose, a wig. So it was a really good routine as an upcoming makeup artist to learn a chairside manner, how to work with people. And, you know, we were doing tourists as well on some of the other areas of the makeup show. So we'd bring people in, make them up as Frankenstein, as the bride. Eventually the um, Land of a Thousand Makeup show closed and opened up a new show called the Castle Dracula Show, which, again, was horror makeups Mm. on people from the audience. Done very quickly, old style, good old grease paint and powder, um, kind of reflecting the old genre of the old classic horror characters. And during that time, I had been sculpting and making molds and making masks in my garage and in my small apartment, just trying to break in and do anything I could on the outside of the tour that brought me some income. Did a few commercials. And um, I'd gone to see Rick Baker, and he advised me to go away, sculpt, make more things for display, show him something better to offer. And a year later, I called him up, and he was very busy, but he did say, you need to talk to Rob Bottin. And uh, he's doing a werewolf movie called The Howling. 
So I called Rob, said Rick said to call him, and Rob happened to be dropping by the neighborhood that night um, to actually Greg Canham's house. So there's a, a small circle of names you're starting to hear mm-hmm. from me. Um, there was a community out here. He came by to drop some molds off to Greg Canham's house, came by my apartment, which looked like a mask factory. I was sculpting, making molds, airbrushing masks. He walked right into the middle of that, hired me on the spot. So I continued to work at Universal Studios on the weekends doing a double shift and then worked during the week for Rob, sculpting, making molds, running latex, painting masks, punching hair, gluing fur to werewolf bodies. Mm. Uh, on the howling, working back and forth at Rob's house in my apartment. And that went on for several months. And eventually I left Universal and went full-time with Rob, which continued into almost seven days a week, until the howling was in, in shooting stages. We started filming, and then I was one of their on-set guys helping Rob, uh, manipulating the werewolf heads. I was a werewolf in a couple of the scenes of the movie. And there happened to be a break at the time where I wasn't needed. I took some time off, took a little vacation back home to Oklahoma to visit the family. Came back and I visited a friend who was in a, a low-budget horror film called Home Sweet Home. Oh, yes. Yeah, well, no one. And his, he is a guy who is very well known now. His name is Body by Jake. His mm. name is Jake Steinfeld. Yeah. He is a, was, became a personal trainer, but I knew Jake from the tour at Universal. He was the Hulk character that I made up. Okay. So he'd gotten a break in his little horror film as the crazy killer with the knife, and I went to visit him and met a gentleman by the name of Jack Petty. And Jack was a makeup artist, a season's makeup artist. He used to do a lot of Sam Peckinpah films. And Jack asked me if I, could, if I wanted to assist him for the rest of the film. So it only had about a week to go, and the company was doing a collection of three films, Mm. very low-budget films, two weeks shooting each. I finished Home Sweet Home with a little what we call slash and gash makeup. Yeah. (laughs) Jack kind of took me under his wing, showed me how to do stuff right on the actor using scar plastics and materials and really kind of broke me into the out-of-kit way to do makeup. Uh, At at that point, it was all learned from a book. Mm-hmm. And I continued to work with him on another film called Terror on Tour. And then I went into another film called Slay the Joker. And these were all three really low-budget films. Mm. You know, I think I made $100 a day working on them, which was good money at the time. Of course. I made $300 a week working on The Howling. Yeah. And, you know, compared to The Circus, that was great money. So it was slowly a steady climb. And kind of through uh, the rough way to make films, it was very commando filmmaking. Well, on Home Sweet Home, we had a director, I mean, a director of photography and cameraman. His name was uh, James Roberson. Mm. And Jim brought in one day, because we were filming in an old theater, an old movie theater. And one day after work, he goes, hey, I I just filmed this uh, little clip of a movie. We've just done the intro, and it's going to be my first directing job. And it's called Witch, and I have to show it to everybody. So it was a little five-minute piece that shot up in an old house about some teenagers sneaking into a house and then the mystical powers of the house taking over and killing them off one by one. And I go, wow, that was really cool. It was really nice to work on that. And 
so that was that. And it kind of went out of my head because I didn't ever know when they were going to get their budget together. And soon after that, I started working on other little projects. I went back, worked on the howling for a few pickup days here and there. And got other jobs. And then along came a job. Um, I was called by a gentleman by the name of Bill Munns who had taught at a makeup academy and had gone off on his own, like many of us, and set up a small makeup lab in their garage. And Bill had uh, this film, Swamp Thing, he wanted me to work on. Mm. So it was a matter of you know sculpting, making molds, running foam latex, baking things in the backyard ovens. It was really, like I say, commando filmmaking, pretty much at the lowest level. But we had some really talented people working with us. We had a guy named Ken Horn, who is now one of the curators of the Wax Museum in Hollywood. Now he does all the, you know, the heads and you know refurbishes everything there. And a longtime friend, Dave Miller, who worked with me way back on the Universal tour. Well, Dave and I worked on Swamp Thing together, and at the same time, Bill had acquired some work on a show called The Witch. Okay. Yeah. And he had to make a fake arm for it, you know, like a monster arm or something, and a few other little effects. And um, what was the, the actress's name you said you spoke to, Kath- Catherine? Uh, no, it was, um, where are we, uh, Carol Goldman. Carol. Yeah. Well, Carol was the witch character in the film. Mm-hmm. And what happened was Bill, being the kind of organizer of the job, pretty much did not go on the set. He had other things to do. And between the two jobs, between Swamp Thing and Witch, Dave and I were kept very busy making all these little pieces. The first day we went on the set to take something for a test, they wanted me to be their on-set makeup artist. So what I ended up doing is working out whatever Bill would have us do in the shop, and I would carry it to the set, and I would do the makeups daily. The witch character, you know, it was a very low-budget film. Mm. We shot up in a, a big house. I believe it was an old Tom Mix estate. It was a Western cowboy star up in Silver Lake. There was a humongous mansion up on a hill. had a basement in it. Uh, it was really a, a really neat place to walk around in. It was a bit dilapidated. A big winding staircase that went up into the foyer as you walked in. Some big side rooms. And it was a great place to shoot a haunted house movie. Mm. So that was our base. We shot there. We shot also in Franklin Canyon, which is over in the middle of Hollywood. It's You go down into a long winding road and you're at this small lake. And that's where we filmed all of the exterior um, water scenes in which where, the, where Albert Salmi looks down into the water and the witch reaches up out of the water and pulls him down in off mm. of the boat dock. So it was an interesting movie in that all these character actors were in it. Stacy Keach Sr., Albert Salme, who played the police officer. A guy by the name of Larry Pinnell played the father in the movie. Mm. Was and, Clark, Gable, Clark Gable lookalike? Yes, and yeah. I remembered Larry from when I was a child. I used to watch a TV show called Ripcord. And he was on there as a character, along with Ken Curtis, who ended up playing Festus on Gunsmoke. Mm. So I recognized all these character actors from my childhood, and it was kind of really an interesting show to work on because I'm 
doing all these makeups out of kit on these people. I met a stuntman by the name of Bud Davis, who was our witch character. And we didn't have enough money for a whole witch. We had enough money to do arms and hands mm. and a silhouette of a yeah. witch. We're pretty effective. And, yeah, and our witch in the flashback was Carol. Mm. And that was a really interesting makeup in that it was kind of brown-breaking. Uh, Dick Smith had done some makeups on a film, Altered States. Right, yeah. And in The Howling, we had done similar effects. We used mm. air bladders under prosthetics. Mm. You know, Dick and Rick Baker had talked about doing a lot of that stuff, and then it got passed on to Rob Bottin, who really used it to the max on The Howling. So we devised a similar setup when the witch was being burned at the stake that we would, um, well, I think it was burned at the stake. I think she was dropped into water That's right. on a post. Yeah. They drowned her. Mm. It's, it's difficult. I haven't seen the film since I first, I don't know where I saw it, but it's, you've probably seen it more times than I have. I've seen it probably more times than yeah. I probably should have. <laughs> um, but it'd be fun to see it and see what, it, what I left behind. Yeah. Uh, but the producers kept saying, we want stuff like in The Howling. We want mm. all these effects like in The Howling. So I said, okay, it's time to do air bladders. So I made up all of these air bladders. Dave um, worked, David Miller worked with me. And together we put on this makeup and devised all these air tubes that ran down the back of her neck. We injected trichloral, trifluoroethane into the foam latex from underneath, which is basically a rubber cement solvent. It's not that great on the skin, mm. but it makes this the skin puff up and swell and distort. So we just pulled out all the stops, and it was groundbreaking at the time for makeup effects to do this kind of stuff. Mm. You know, if you saw altered states, you saw how effective the air bladders under the skin were. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, so we were the low-budget version of that. We, we, we just ran with it. And it was a fun effect. We got it all on film. And as soon as Carol dropped back into the water, she said, please get this off. It's burning my skin. I mean, she told me that when I spoke yeah. to her. Yeah. She also, and, uh, she, she also said that she kept the, the mask um, that was done of her face. The, um, oh, the uh, life cast. The life cast. She said it had it on her wall until about a year ago when she um, threw it away, which is a real shame. But she said yeah. um, it, she remembered that for a, for a long time, and the burning um, effect from the makeup kind of stayed with her. Yeah, that, but, you know, it's like we were all young and new then. Yeah. I, it was, and I always regret when that happens with an actor or an actress. So... That was a real good learning lesson for me that you really have to think of your <laughs> victim, so to say, for their, for their well-being. Yeah, of course. I, I remember her, it was basically, if you know the feeling like if you put acetone on your skin, mm. the evaporation of it, it's very cold. Yeah. Um, a similar effect happens with other solvents, but if you trap them next to the skin with no way to escape, you can get what's called a derm like a dermatological burn. Mm. It's temporary. It's a, a slight tingling. Like, say you're pouring al alcohol on a cut. Mm. That's what it feels like. But we got her out of it as quickly as possible, and she was a real trooper. I really have to give her a pat on the back for you know taking whatever we could throw at her. But, uh, you know, that was one of our big first makeups on the film, which kind of sensed my presence on the show. After that, I did the makeup on Bud Davis as, a, as the creature who reaches out and grabs, you know, unsuspecting victims with these long fingernails. And I had made 
fingertip extensions to go on his hand and done all this buildup on his hands with big gnarly veins and and stuff. And some of that stuff was tough to get off at the end of the day. Uh, Bud didn't have much hair on his arms after that, after the first few days. And in one shot, we had to see the witch backlit with smoke. And Dave very quickly sculpted a witch head, and I sculpted a witch uh, torso stomach, which is kind of big, saggy breast with a big, fat belly and and veins all over it. it was, I don't think you ever see it front lit. No, I don't think you do, actually. No, no. It's, I was going to ask, did you... Um, I want to speak to Michael Sable, who was, um, who was the writer and um, associate producer of the film, and you alluded to the fact that you were kind of, you know, just kids starting out on this, and he said um, a similar thing, that um, the producers were constantly asking them to tone it down, and one of the uh, examples he gives is was Stacey Keach Sr. gets the, the buzzsaw blade goes oh, through saw, him. Yeah. And he was he's telling me that how they had a fantastic time throwing blood around and really making it over and over the top and he said the producer came back and said I knew I couldn't leave you alone um, <laughs> so, did, were you there for that and for, for I, those... I was actually not there for that scene okay. that was a mechanical effect that mm. was handled by the um, the special effects department and it was basically you know what's, what's called smoke and mirrors shot where mm. it was a, a mechanical device that you know the the blade flies off of the the saw bounces and it's a lot of done with with wires and and a mechanical effect close up on the face you don't really see the gimmick and it's basically splattering blood mm. on Stacy so he really was in in no way of getting harmed of course um, and when I actually saw the film I go wow I didn't even know that was in the movie so okay. <laughs> uh, when the mirror blows up and in the father's face and all the glass flies into his face. That was something where I just put a blood off a blood tube off camera and they wanted a lot of splurting blood. Um, there's another scene where a young lady is trapped by the witch and her head is impaled to the floor by a big spike. Which is a very brutal scene, isn't it? I remember that always stayed with me when I saw it as a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Very brutal scene. And interesting way we did it was we had a, a foam latex cast of our, girl in a grimace and we laid her on the floor with a hole in the floor with a small sling to hold her her head so all she did was lean her head back and we sat this phony head tucked the neck into her shirt dressed the hair around where the hole was and it had a metal bracket that went across the front the inside of it with a, a metal cup into the forehead so you actually just poke your finger through the forehead and you could feel where the metal cup was where we had a blood tube to pump blood up into that. So it was a very simple mechanical device that was underneath this foam latex head. So when it held her into position, it was her own body and arms fighting while the, the creature drove the stake into her forehead. And then we had a small mishap. Some of the blood which comes spurting out of the head, drained back down underneath and got all over actress's face. And some of it went up her nose. So uh, suffering for her art. Okay. Yeah. Suffering for her art. You know, she's choking on a little bit of their Cairo syrup blood that we were using. God. And there's the, the other sister, the blonde sister, because um, 
a little bit of history of um, for for me with the film is um, I was uh, probably about um, twelve or thirteen when I first saw it on video in the UK, and it was yeah. a very very popular film here in in the UK, and it's one of the only films I've ever heard of that came out on video first, and of course video was quite new back then. Um, right. So popular in the UK on video that they actually released it in the cinema after it been on video, not the other way around. So it got released as oh. The Witch on, on on the screens in the UK. Because um, I believe, I don't think it actually got a theatrical release in the States until 1985. Um, uh, that's my understanding of those things. But... Um, but I, the reason that my friends loved it was actually special effects. I mean, it was a, it was a brilliant time. It's the American Wealth in London, the howling. And it was always to see what the special effects would be like next. Um, and one of the, the scenes, I think it was with the other sister, who you don't really see getting killed. Um, but I actually saw some Mexican lobby cards, which I bought off eBay um, a while back. And I have to send you um, uh, some uh, JPEGs of those. Um, oh, them So... I was going to say one of them showed um, the blonde girl lying in the in the wagon with her all her entrails thrown all over the place, which didn't actually make the final movie. I think most of the um, special effects are in there, but obviously some some things did hit the cutting room floor, which must always be kind of the bane of the life of a special effects man, wasn't it? The, the, all, yeah. all your hard work sometimes vanishes. Yeah, it does. And the way that film was set up is they had someone else doing the the regular makeup and all the actors on the mm-hmm. set. And, you know, if it was a little blood here and there, like like say in the States of this case of the Stacey Keach, whoever was doing on set, and I really can't remember uh, the on set makeup person, um, they would handle those those little cuts and scratches and a fleck of blood kind of things. And as these special effects makeup artists, I would come in basically with the heavy artillery. I had the blood pumps and all that gear. And so there are scenes that actually, if you see the movie, I wasn't there and I probably wasn't even aware they were shot at the time. I didn't have a working script. Mm. I had pages of the scene that was being shot. Uh, Jim, uh, the director, was also from Oklahoma. So we had a little bit of a kinship there. I've actually seen him one time since then and he was a cameraman on on a TV series over at Paramount and it was years ago. Just lost touch. Um, but, yeah, so quite often those, like you mentioned, like the entrails and stuff, that'll be dressed by the prop person. Right. Yeah, of course. So they simply cover the girl with blood and throw some entrails on her, and and that's, that's that, you know. We had a – and it was really – it's amazing what they can cram into a movie and what you can pull out of your hat yeah, on a yeah, moment's notice. Yeah. And that has been part of my life in film ever since, you know, on Lost. It was the same kind of a thing. Mm. Thank goodness for the experience of films like this that made me think on my feet. Thank goodness for the experience of being in the circus where you're traveling around, working with all kinds of people, um, language barriers, personality barriers, um, how to make props with what is at hand at the local hardware store. Those types of groundwork as a special effects makeup artist have been invaluable to me. Of course. And, yeah. You know, and I, you know, I came in at a time when low budget horror films were the rage working with Tom Berman in his studio and several low budget films, which led into bigger budget films, um, being exposed to films, thankful to Rick and Rob, like the howling 
And then I, I went on to work with V. Neal. We became friends, and V and I worked together on several shows, starting with Low Budgets, working up into Lost Boys, and then on to, to Beetlejuice. And, and it, it was a steady climb, but it was great formula for a creative artist to be around those types of films at the time. Of course, of course. I don't want to take too much more of your time, Steve. I mean, sure. I'm sure our listeners are going to find this absolutely fascinating. Um, I just was going to ask you, actually, about how things are different now. You've covered a little bit of it um, uh, in the early 1980s to what's happening now. I Just just on back on superstition, I just wanted you... Um, would it be right to, th- to think it was filmed kind of early, mid-1981? Yes, I was I was married in 1981. My daughter was born in 82. Right. So literally, the time we are right now, 30 years ago, we were filming it. Wow. Wow. Well, that's a perf- perfect time to do a retrospective of the of the film, isn't it? I think. Yeah. So that's that's great. And um, just to to wrap things up, um, Steve, because um, thank you ever so much for giving me your time. It's just to say, I mean, if you look back at say something like Superstition, you've covered a little bit about this, but now, I mean, when I when you look at your um, your CV, I mean, the films you worked on are amazing, and you're working on massive blockbusters now, which must have. I mean, many, many, you know, in some cases, you know, tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars budget. Um, right. how's, how's it, you know, how does it compare, you know, with CGI and the difference between working with latex? I mean, how, you know, do you, you still, obviously still love your job, but um, how do you, how do you feel things are different now? I, well, you know, it's, I used to, I, you have to think differently. Mm. Um you have to think that, okay, I need to put a bullet hole in this guy's head and I'm going to have a tube and the director, oh, no, no, we're going to CGI that. You don't need to. All you need is after effect. Mm. We, will, we will do that for you. Mm. And it's, it's kind of nice that they can do that, but it's also kind of sad yeah. in that the practical effects are kind of being put to the wayside of being taken over by some CGI. Mm. I was just recently at a an event two weeks ago called Monster Palooza mm. in Hollywood here, and they had a whole retrospective on The Howling, actually. Okay, yes. and all of the fans there were big fans of old school special makeup effects. Yeah, the lack of CGI. Mm. Now I realize there is a great marriage between the two. Yeah. Um, but in these days where there's a behind-the-scenes movie of how they did everything in the world, it kind of takes the magic away. Of course, it's, it's smoke and mirrors, isn't it? It's, it's make-believe and um, create yeah. magic. Because, um, I, no, I, I agree. I mean, this is one of the things that I, you know, when I was growing up, I loved the whole special effects. And, of course, back in the early 80s with people like Tom Savini and, um, um, and Rob and the people you've spoken about, I mean, there was that kind of... Um, back in the early 80s, there was almost like um, a time when makeup effects men were like rock stars, weren't they? There was a real <laughs> cult of personality around um, and many makeup effects, and people were looking forward to, say, the next Friday the 13th or the next kind of um, big horror movie because they want to see what would happen, what would top um, the next one. And of course, unfortunately, in the UK, and I think in the States to some degree, that censorship um, after 81, 82 really kind of came into the fore and actually actually made a lot of the stuff that you guys were doing was actually ending up on the cutting room floor um, and never being seen, which is obviously, you know, a real tragedy. But, um, but yeah, certainly a lot of the people, and I know the other guys did a podcast with, um, you know, big fans of the pra- pra- sort of big fans of the practical effects. And mm-hmm. CGI is getting to a place now, and it's, it's quite seamless. But um, 
unfortunately, sometimes you can spot the CGI um, over the practical effects. And um, certainly, looking back at what you, you did on Superstition with Carol Goldman, um, the makeup effects, I mean, that was really creepy stuff. And, you know, I remember as a kid thinking, how amazing was that? And so, you know, from you know, from a complete geek geek out, it was going to say, you know, thank right. you from the bottom of my heart, Steve, for coming on this today, and you know, thank you for providing you know with me with nightmares as my twelve-year-old self back in the early eighties, <laughs> which is fantastic. So, um, is, there, is there anything else you want to say, Steve? What are you up to at the moment? Or well, I think that um, as as much as low-budget horror films were a part of that genre. I think they are making a comeback. Mm. I think with the advent of the, all the zombie movies... Of course. A lot a lot of... And they're, they're getting better, better budgets, but I think there, a lot of the practical effects and the practical use of makeups are being re-appreciated by the fans. Mm. Mm. I feel sorry for some makeup people who are naive about what it takes to do some of the magic tricks we used to do, and they're in a learning curve right now. Yeah, I hope people like myself are continually employed because we have been there. We've lived through it. We know the little magic tricks and the, the shortcuts to do stuff without the extravagant expenses spent on CGI. And there are a lot of low-budget films being made out there. I've worked with a lot of artists back in Boston. There's, there's an artist back there who wrote, produced, directed, and wrote and, and acted in and did all the makeup effects in his own short film. Yeah, which is, so is, is, those those things are out there. Well, absolutely. I mean, if you look at a film like Insidious, which is just out in the UK um, in uh, well, very shortly, um, and that's that was something took it was one point five million dollars to produce, but it's made something like forty five million dollars at the American box office. So. Um, I can't remember if it's, it was. It might have been Roger Corman who said um, to people who want to break into um, into the film business, the best thing to do is get a camera, some good-looking teenagers, take them to a, a deserted house and kill them off creatively one by one, and that's that's the formula for getting into the film business. Um, and I can't see that ever stopping anytime soon. It's um, it's the perfect in. And I think there's always going to be people watching films like these. I'm sure there'll always be fans. And uh, um, and again, just want to say, Steve, thank you ever so much for taking time out to talk to us today. Um, we'll be doing this retrospective in a couple of weeks' time, and I'll, I'll send you a link. Great. Great. I'd love to send me a link and send me a link to your website. I'd yeah, love we'll to do. check out what you do, and uh, we'll talk again. Okay, and that was Steve Laporte, um, who thank you ever so much again to Steve for, um, you know, taking his time to speak to us. He actually also said uh, he was going to send over some um, images uh, from the unused makeup for The Witch and Superstition, because he said something bizarrely about her having a huge pot belly, which you don't see in the film. Um, but he said that there's some um, images that he's going to send over to me soon when he gets finished working on Pirates of the Caribbean movie, which is mind-boggling that he went from superstition to that, but that's that's what how it was. Um, just some information about um, superstition. 
uh, just a couple of things that sort of struck me again about the film was, of course, the the, the character of Mary, who was the little blonde girl um, in the film, who kind of turns up, who turns out probably, although it's not actually made that clear whether or not she is actually the witch anyway, but it's kind of very much a nod again. Um, I'm glad you said that because I was actually about to ask you, what did you th- did you think she was the witch or what? Because I, I was kind of unclear on that. I think so, because at the end, um, and obviously we are in spoiler territory and we've already said we are, is um, she says when he throws the the big um, cross into the lake, which incidentally was the same cross that was used in the the film The Evil. There's one little tidbit there. But he throws it in and he, he says, oh, don't worry, the witch is dead. And she says she would have been if she'd been home. So I kind of got the impression that meant that she herself was the witch or an incarnation of the witch. And she was saying to him, I wasn't home. So when, but then of course he stabs her and then she falls into the lake. But then we can't, you know, slasher movies, of course, you know, look at the Friday 13th series. There's, um, you know, there's no point dissecting them too much, I can guess. But that was my take on it. I mean, how about you guys? What did you think? Yeah, I thought I assumed she was the witch as well. I mean, because mm. he like he does he stabs her in, at the end, and uh, I just assume that she's the sort of the reincarnation, if you like, or the ghostly uh, embodiment of the witch from the lake. Yeah. Well, see, that's what I'm saying. I, I knew that she was the witch, but I wasn't certain if she was the witch through the whole thing when she was like talking to uh, little Billy Jacoby through the whole film or showing mm. up. I didn't know if she was the witch then, or if or if the witch inhabited this little. Well, I, Girl, I, I mean, I was kind of unclear. I got on that. the impression because you know he's sort of saying about Final Destination, but you know when the the bus saw scene when Stacy Keach Senior, who was um, actually the father of Stacy Keach, as you, you might imagine from the name, she skips across the floor, doesn't she? Before that happens, so she kind of makes it happen somehow by however. I it didn't is. notice that. I didn't. Yeah, she kind of skips across in front of the when because um, she talks to the, the priest the first time when he's cleaning the paint off and then she skips across the floor and then he's saying saying to everyone stop stop we gotta and then as they're stopping that's when the bus door flies off and goes into the priest's chest so I mean that's the impression I got also I thought it was very much a nod to something like Kill Baby Kill the Maria Bava film and also incidentally actually the um, the perfume of the lady in black has a, a little girl in white as well it seems to be quite a staple um, of a kind of like I, I kind of guess it's the kind of um, the archetype of pure purity and innocence, isn't it? Is a blonde-haired girl in white frilly dress, and so having turning that around and making her potentially the the evil one, I think it's just kind of you know turning conventions on their head. Um, but um, I was going to say just a couple of things. The the, the two girls I really liked, I mean, especially the um, Cheryl, who's the bitchy one, the surly one. Um, I did a little bit of research on her, and obviously, again, as we said, we always try and get hold of people, see if we could interview them. Um, she, I couldn't find her. She has a strange um, name, Malo McCaslin. Um, couldn't find her anywhere, but she was in, she went sort of onto the giddy heights of Santa Barbara. Um, now, I don't know if any of you saw Santa Barbara, the, um, the, the daytime soap, but it actually played in the UK for, for a while. Um, and it was a, quite a joy to behold. It was quite trashy. Um, <laughs> that was a staple in my household when I was young. I, Santa I loved, Barbara was on television all the time. I loved the episode when they have the big earthquake. It might have been the very last episode. And they have the same um, people walking past the camera, then picking up a different colour surfboard and walking back past the other way. And then it's the same people just walking past, carrying different things like 
pot plants and stuff like that. And then they have huge polystyrene blocks, which they did the earthquake scene on, bouncing off people's heads. It's, it's pure class. But she was in that. I'm not sure what character. But also, sadly, she was in something called Broken Famous, playing herself, a documentary, which means... Obviously, things didn't probably didn't work out um, the way she may have wanted them to. I kind of guess in Tinseltown. Um, the other, um, the the blonde head girl was um, slightly more famous, I think, in in the states. Anyway, I'm um, Heidi Bahe or Boha or whatever, however you pronounce her name. Um, apparently, she was in Hotel. Um, do you guys remember that? Yeah, mm-hmm. mm, yeah, but she was she was in that, and apparently she did thing. Of course, Billy Jane, who was in Bloody Birthday, we talked about last time. Um, he was in this. He played my namesake Justin, and um, he was in it before he gets well killed by the witch. Um, uh, he was also obviously an X-ray, and it's a shame. As I think we said before we did try and speak to him, and he did originally you know, say that he was interested in answering the question. So we didn't hear back from him, but then people are busy and, you know, we understand that. And, but, um, they, that's how things go. But, uh, um, when I spoke to Michael, J- um, Osabjo, he, I mean, he said that they were very much fans of Super Suspiria. And I think you can see that in the film that it's kind of, um, it's, you know, it's, it's taken not to, towards that. Um, just, just a bit, a few more bits about the film. Um, it's funny that you guys are saying that you really like the first 10 minutes because, um, ironically, well, ironically, the um, the first 10 minutes of the film are actually a separate movie. They were filmed before the rest of the film was made as a way of drumming up um, interest in financing the rest of the film. And um, what Michael J. Uh, Michael Osabjel said told, told me was that they sold it to producers who then rewrote their script and made it a lot less thrilling as far as that he was concerned and he said and this is really bizarre he tells a really funny story and he tells it better than i can on on the website but he said that when they're filming the circular draws um the circular source scene he said that the producers were constantly trying to get them to tone down the violence why i don't know but um he said when they were away and i think i actually i mentioned this in the steve laporte interview but when they're away um they what they did was um was they just chucked loads of blood at it, made it really, really bloody. And then the producer came back and said, I can't leave you alone for a minute. So I'm probably just repeating myself, actually. I remember talking to um, to Steve Laporte about that. But, yeah, but it's interesting. The film was actually a 10-minute short, which was used, which is why there's a slightly different, so much packed into the first 10 minutes. Um, so I think what else there... Um, oh, yeah, Michael um, Sabjels thought it was going to be a franchise. He thought it was going to be the next Friday the 13th or Halloween. Um, but obviously what happened was the film was shot in April 1981. Uh, and I, when I went back through Variety, I was having a look through there, and it seems that it got caught up in some kind of legal wrangles, which may explain why the film didn't get a release actually into in the United States until 1985. Um, and Michael says that it actually did pretty well in um, urban areas in the eastern United States, but didn't play any further west than Mississippi. So uh, so the film didn't do that well. But of course, it was four years old by that point. It was released unrated um, at the cinema, one of the last few films to be released unrated in the States. Um, in I think it got released in Spain in 1982, I think, uh, and then came out on video in 83. And I think I mentioned in the in Steve Laporte um, 
uh, interview, it was one of the very few films that was so popular on video in the United Kingdom. It actually got a subsequent um, cinema release. And I remember seeing the, the quad poster for The Witch up at the our local Odeon. Um, I was trying to think if there's anything else. Is there anything else, guys, you wanted to say about the film? I wanted to say that uh, one thing I forgot to mention is that the actual witch, the, um, the you know the image you see coming through the door with the hood mm. at the very end, it's ba- it's all backlit. I'm actually kind of glad that we didn't really get a good look at the witch because I've always thought that witches looked a little more silly than scary. So mm. I think by keeping the actual face kind of hidden, it kind of lets you use your imagination as to what she looks like under there. And uh, I just I, I don't think showing her in full would have helped the film. I think, you know, keeping her backlit and just a specter coming towards the screen, I thought that kind of elevated the, the tension level a little, mm. if no, that I think, makes any I think, sense. I think they did really well. The only thing that made one of made me laugh, because it was, is that we used to have a cat called George Glass, a black cat. And I remember George Glass. I remember George Glass. Mm. And he had, he had, like, very long claws, and he had one bit of tuft on his, one of his... Um, his um, paws that was longer than the other. And he used to, we used to see him, he used to claw his way, a door open, so you see his paw coming around the door and pulling it. So I can never take superstition that seriously because, especially after having George Glass, because every time I saw that claw coming towards people, I always thought it looked a bit like George Glass. But of course, that's just, that's just me. Um, but no, I agree. Well, I th- sorry. I don't remember a George Glass at our school. Sorry? I just, I just had to throw that out. I don't remember a George Glass at our school. <laughs> Colin, you're the Brady Bunch guy. You should know that. Yes, yes. No, I know. I know. Sorry, I do apologise. I was on a different level, not <laughs> not higher level, obviously. But, uh, but any, anything else, guys? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, as you said, you couldn't take the film seriously, and I can't mm. take it seriously because throughout the course of the film, no matter how many misfortunate events happen to these people, they still don't twig that maybe they should leave the house. Mm. I mean, how many people have to be decapitated or? killed with circular saws before they twig <laughs> yeah. hmm, maybe we should leave i mean even when dragging their daughter out of the lake and she's got a severed arm attached to her leg they still like, well, that just happens every night yeah, yeah oh i'm not one of those again <laughs> a lot of deaths happen before they even move in don't they hear a story that the family I know, yeah. almost like hacked up yeah. Yeah. And they got the one guy yeah. who kind of gets uh, his neck his neck stuck in the wiring of that i think it's a dumbwaiter or an elevator yeah. or something mm. And uh, I guess they don't really know that happened. But, uh, yeah, these people keep dying towards the middle of the film, and they're just like, well, let's investigate. You know, let's let's get down to the, the root of all this religious mumbo-jumbo. And me, I'm sitting there thinking, fuck that. I'm getting the hell out of here. Fuck this house. Yeah. Well, it's funny that, that with this, it's kind of, um, was it Hans Manship who interviewed, or you interviewed Joseph, and he played, was it him who played the kind of silent kind of um, guy with learning difficulties in the in House of Death? Yeah, he played Casey in House of Death. The, was he, the yeah, brain damaged. Yeah, because yeah. there was similar character in this, wasn't there? Mm-hmm. Who was kind of who was running around looking sort of you know like a mime. Oh, I forgot that scene. Yeah, he's he's basically running around. He's he's beating the crap out of everybody, and the cops yeah. are shooting at him, and he just keeps running. And mm. I, I forgot that scene. Yeah, that was he looks like the lead singer of Keen. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, I thought it was, I thought it was, that was the thing that I thought was really funny when they're going, and it's a secret hiding place that's been there since the 1600s or whatever, and it's kind of um, you know like all our family go there to protect the witch, blah blah blah, and then when you actually see it. It's like someone's um, garage in Los Angeles, isn't it? So it's not. It doesn't look very like an ancient hiding place by by any standards. But um, yeah. it's um, like a bed set. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I also like the scene where the uh, the lead guy is talking to the old woman about the mm. the history, 
And um, she's like, it started in 1692. And he's like, well, uh, I don't think we have records that go back that far. And she's like, check the library archive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was fantastic. I mean, that's, that's what I love. I mean, I do, if you've not seen Superstition, um, I, I, you know, it's a film that, it, it's a lot of fun. You should see it at least once. Um, it's 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 not going to win any prizes for anything at all, but it is a lot of fun. It's one of my favourites, and I think, you know, as you guys are saying that if you'd seen it when you, you know, be my age or whatever, you might have enjoyed it, hold it in slightly higher regard, but I've got that nostalgia wrapped up. But I've, I have do really um, enjoy the film. And one thing, actually, I just remembered, actually, um, was that I don't believe um, an uncut version's ever really been released, even though it's a very gory film. Um, there's on the interview with Michael on his series lives. Um, I I um, bought some. I think they were Mexican or Spanish lobby cards for Superstition, um, and it was released over there. I think it's the House of Mary or something or Casa del Mary or wherever it was. Um, but the Hyde Bohe's character, when you see when the priest goes down and opens up the the car or the the wagon and and she's lying there. Um, there's actually a shot when she she's been disemboweled and all her guts are all hanging all over the place. That's not in the final film. They may have cut it out, but that was certainly filmed or at least was was meant to be included. Um, and interestingly, on the BBFC website, which is again is the British Censors website, they they list um, the film being um, resubmitted in an in an edited form. Uh, now I've actually got The Witch um, I can see I've got the video um, for The Witch and I've got the video for Superstition they look identical to, identical to me but um, there may be some slight differences so uh, there's some there's half decent um, releases I think there's a Region 1 release of this and a Region 2 release so uh, I think they're both still in print and actually just as an aside uh, talking about um, DVDs uh, there's just if you haven't heard the news, there's there's been um, um, news talking about Slaughter High and Funhouse earlier, but um, there's news. There's lots of new slash movies or old slash movies coming out on DVD, um, um, including finally Humongous, and um, it, it's not. It's a film I'm sure we're going to cover at some point, and it's a film that I kind of have a love hate relationship with, but it's always been criticised for being far too dark. Uh, and I, I put a trailer on my Facebook or the History Lives Facebook page, which showed that was much lighter. Uh, and so hopefully they will do a, a better version of that and we'll finally get to see the film as it's meant to be seen. Um, and I got in contact with, um, is it Scorpion? Is it Scorpion releasing? But they and offered, I've got some humongous um, memorabilia, which I've sort of said I could scan and send to them. And, and they got back to me and said they'd be interested in that. So hopefully they'll be putting out some pretty good releases on, on that. And um, so on that bombshell, is there anything, anything else we want to talk about Superstition before we wrap things up, guys? I'm, I'm scared to do it. Get it? Ha, 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 ha. Eh? Superstition. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, it's a lame we... joke. Lame we'll joke. Okay. Joke. We'll end on a lame joke. But one thing actually ends on a proper bombshell and say that we have got a bonus episode coming up next week. And normally we do these things um, every other week because um, so we can fit everything in. There's four of us, so it's sometimes a little bit tricky to get us all together at the same time. But um, we have got uh, two interviews with um, the uh, cast um, from the initiation. 
And as you, if you've been following the podcast, you know we did a initiation podcast um, back near the beginning. But we've actually got um, two very enlightening uh, audio interviews, one with Christopher Bradley and also another with Joy Tipping, um, who played the um, the assistant. Um, the glamorous the, assistant. The glamorous assistant. To Heidi. Heidi, yes. Yeah. And, of course, Christopher played um, Chad, I think it was, who was yeah. one of the, the boys that breaks into them all. Uh, and some very entertaining um, recollections from them. So we're going to do a bonus episode, which I hope to put out um, a week today. So, so keep an ear out for that. Um, and I think if we're going to wrap things up, guys, then if we've got nothing else to say, I shall leave or we shall play out with some music from Superstition.